0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.
2: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at WisconsinCheese.com.
1: Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Jean Baptiste Lacayon. We'll talk to Jean Baptiste about Champagne Collection Two Forty Four. Maybe slip a little Cristallin and more. We'll taste the Collection Two Forty Four for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Champagne runs through Jean-Baptiste Le Calion's veins, a native of, I was with Daniel Jonas a couple days ago, and yeah. I said, how do I pronounce this? He goes, nothing of what I, he goes, it's it's <laughs> Rheims. So don't say that. Okay. So he's a native of Hans, which to many people when they look on paper is Rheims, but yeah. we're not going to say that, which is in Champagne. He received his degree in viticulture and enology from the University of Montpellier. He joined the Louis Roederer Champagne House in 1989, working in Tasmania and the Anderson Valley in the U.S., before returning to France, eventually overseeing all vineyard and winery operations. Jean-Baptiste is his chef du cave and EVP of Champagne at Louis Roederer. He is one of Champagne's most pioneering winemakers with his holistic approach to the vines and wines. Welcome to the Grave Nation, Jean-Baptiste.
3: Thank you, Sam. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: All right. So we are talking to Jean-Baptiste in New York City, out of his environment a little. Um, He's here to do a bunch of things. He'll be leading a master class at La Fête du Champagne, among other things this week. So he'll be around. Um, When are you heading back?
3: On Sunday. Okay.
1: So he's here for the weekend. Will you be pouring at Lafayette? Will I, you will be, okay. for sure. I will be, Oh
3: sure. I would be pouring and drinking. Okay.
1: <laughs> yes, that's very important to do both. <laughs> All right. So Jean-Baptiste, I know and I think my listeners know that you are a towering force in wine and champagne. Um, for my listeners who know and have drank your wines, um, they may not know of you or the person behind it. So what I want you to do is quickly give me a little chronology of your journey in life and wine that got you to really where you are today, which is really, you know, overseeing one of the most prestigious and unique, Mm. you know, wines in the world.
3: Yeah. Uh, Thank you, Sam. Uh, Yes, I I grew up in Champagne, in Reims, as we say. Uh, I grew up in Champagne and I'm from not from a Champagne family. In fact, I'm from uh, a BIA. Three generations beer makers. My, par- my father, my grandfather, my great grandfather were beer makers. We had a company in Champagne, uh, making beer. So I grew up in the smell of yeast and smell on uh, bubbles, but uh, different bubbles in a way. And I grew up, of course, with uh, the sons and um, uh, the children of the great family of champagne and uh, made a lot of good friends and great friends some are in New York this weekend as well so we'll have fun with a friend with my friends and really it all happened in um, when i was 14 year old you know just um, we had a trip to burgundy uh, school trip to Burgundy to meet uh, a Burgundy writer. And we had a beautiful visit at Du Jacques <laughs> in Morais. Pretty good start. And pretty good start with <laughs> Jacques says, And it was in 1981. And Jacques opened some 1978 Claude Laroche. I tested these wines okay. and I told myself, this is what I'm going to do. You know, the, this, this was so perfumy, so delicate, so civilized, I should say, sophisticated, but in the right way. In a simple way, in an elegant way, that I I told myself this is what I want to do. So wait,
1: I'm trying not to interrupt. But you're telling me at about the age of 14 on a school trip, not a travel trip with your parents, you went to Dujac, you tasted it, and at that time, I know I'm being repetitive... You you were sold. Exactly. Okay, so let's keep going. So
3: I told myself, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make wine because I think this is special. There is all this story, the involvement of the people and the land and the territory, but also in the winemaking, the artistic craftsmanship of each bottle. And I told myself, this is what I want to do. My family is very much a family who loves um, countryside as well. You know, the seasons, uh, Uh, autumn, fall, um, summer, uh, spring, all those elements are very family. Uh, This is my education. So it made sense for me to do, to make something coming from nature and coming from as close as possible from nature. And that would be the next, probably one of our discussions, next discussions. But let's go back to 1981. So I decided to do that and Naturally, I followed the best university. I did the best university in France, which is Montpellier. I graduated first in class <laughs> in viticulture and winemaking in both, which is Boy, unusual. You, you were into it, yeah. <laughs> which is unusual. Usually, usually, you have a great winemaker and a one, number one winemaker and number one viticulturist. But in my case, I, I, I topped both. Um, so, at
1: that point, you realized. The importance yeah. of both, not yeah. favoring or. Exactly. In order to do this, yeah. you need a full understanding of both. Clearly. And if that want- was from the beginning of school on.
3: Exactly. If you want to make the best possible wine, I mean the Grand Vin, what we call the Grand Vin, the Grand Vin, the wine that brings emotions, that brings terroirs, that brings all we love into wine. You need to have great fruit, so you need to be very good in the fruit terroir and the, the way you cultivate, but you need to be a pretty good winemaker to, to be to not ruin all what was done in the, in the vineyard. So sometimes people believe that it's all coming from the vineyard. It's true, but you can ruin quickly by transforming too much, by overplaying the fruit and so on. So you need to be very elegant in the making of wine, and I, I understood that you had to be the best in both. So I graduated from Montpellier and then when I got out of graduation, uh, Jean-Claude Rousseau, the sixth generation owner of Louis-Rodreur came to Montpellier and asked my...
1: Uh, he was pro- a young man then, right?
3: Yeah, he was 50 at the time, 48, right. 50. He came to Montpellier and asked uh, louis Rodeur, uh, the manager, the professor of viticulture and enology of Montpellier, he asked for his best students, because Roder was starting to develop abroad, not only champagne, we were starting in Portugal, starting in Australia, starting in California, new wineries from scratch. And this is a very important part of our DNA, this is starting from scratch, which asks for a lot of stu- initial study, you don't, d- don't right. just take over, you start from scratch. And that was very entrepreneur in a way, uh, a new region, a new place, a new way of farming, create a new way of farming, create a new wine. So I, I, we went to Anderson Valley to create l'Hermitage, <laughs> which was... Uh, first bottling in 89 so this is the year I joined that was uh, the Hermitage project at the time and then the next year we st- we, we had the project to produce the first Tasmanian sparkling wine so I flew to Tasmania and I created Gens the first Tasmanian sparkling wine so there is a lot of pioneer spirit in this family uh, being the first in Anderson Valley sparkling wine one of the strong statement of the North. Everybody was going in Sonoma, right. uh, Napa, but no no one was going in Mendocino County. And Anderson Valley was so remote. Nobody wanted to go there. So we went to the deep end uh, with Anderson Valley. That was a, quite a challenge. And, uh, and uh, so the family needed someone young with some good understanding of vineyard and winemaking who would accept to travel the world uh, going to the south hemisphere on the Tasmanian. in Tasmania. <laughs> I was the only Frenchman in Tasmania yeah, I, I in 1990 think so. to uh, to produce new things, and that was a very adventurous life. Um, and, um, and I joined Roder for that at the beginning, and I think it worked so well, um, and I got so well uh, with 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 the family, and they they, they saw my. Potential that uh, they asked me a few years later to take over the full uh, head of winemaking of, um, of the company uh, w- all over the world, you know, uh, looking at um, Portugal as well as now Domenote in Provence and Bordeaux so as well.
1: I may have had it wrong in the uh, intro. It's not just champagne, it's mm. all wines, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The, this is I'm respect- Bordeaux, exactly
3: Everything. I'm vice president of the family company, right. overviewing right. all I the want people to realize yeah. is,
1: is incredible. As the yeah. champagne thing is, the holdings exactly are yeah. incredible too.
3: Yeah, and uh, I think it's uh, the idea is that not being a flying winemaker, and um, uh, that's very important to state this at this point, is to I'm I, I can I, 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 I can be called a flying coach. But not a flying winemaker. We need good winemakers in every locations because winemaking is about living in the place. Right. You cannot come and say, "Okay, I understand. Being part I know of the, the place." place. No, you, you you will miss something. So you need to leave the place. And we have great winemakers everywhere. They make the wine every day. My job is just to make sure they have the means. And they put all their talent at at, uh, maximum speed because, as maximum quality, because we want to produce the best Pichon Lalande, the best uh, Port, the best uh, Anderson Valley sparkling wine, the best Napa Valley at Diamond Creek now. So the idea is really to help them and uh, make, make sure there is this family spirit of making. Very important steps in the vineyards, the haute couture, should I say. How do you farming. define
1: haute couture when you apply Craftsmanship,
3: it. craftsmanship. Okay. Uh, that's so important that uh, we realize and we keep realizing that now that, and speaking of our viticulture, uh, the one which is sits on unique terroir, unique places where you can make unique wines.
1: That's important.
3: Yes. Where you, you can have... make
1: I- wine anywhere. Yeah. Right? Yes, site exactly. the uniqueness. We'll talk yeah. about that mm-hmm. in a minute. Um, so that pretty much brings you up to current. You know, you're overseeing mm-hmm. the wine operations. You have a heavy hand in the uh, champagne making. Um, and. You know, you were here 35 years later, you know, talking about it. Um, all right. Before we talk about your champagnes, I want to talk to you a little about the region because who better than you? Um, I think you would agree with me. There's been some significant change in champagne. There's a couple of things that I want to point out or discuss. I want to get your take on the grower movement, and I want to get your take on the ever-changing climate climate change um i mean louis roterer to this day and you mentioned uh, monsieur Rosaud, um is still an independent family-owned business um, not as large as some of the other big name champagne houses but mm. it still has a lot of scale mm. as far as you know size and all of that um, do you do you identify With the grower movement, I mean, are you, what is your identity? Are you a a big name champagne house? Is the grower thing, you know, something that's important to be? I know you may mention 70% of the grapes you use are yours. The other 30 Hmm. are other growers. They may be the growers. How do you, how do you think about it? I I
3: think what you say is uh, true. Champagne is changing Champagne is changing, so there is a grower movement. There is climate change. Maybe they are quite linked. In fact, uh, yes. maybe there would not be grower movements. The grower movement without the global warming or the work, uh, change That's of climate. That's fair to say. Because um, the terroir now are singing more, so you can more create more single vineyard expression that was just not possible forty years ago. 50 years ago.
1: Because of climate Because of
3: climate. Because of October harvest with very, let's put it that way, very hard, difficult ripeness. The fruit was hardly ripe. So you had acidity was the main player. It was a very acidic fruit, but it was not so tasty. And what happened with climate change is this tasty fruit, acidity went down, and I think it really created... The, the grower movement as well. <coughs> so
1: you mentioned October and high acidity because of climate change. You're picking later, late August,
3: early September. Now, okay, yeah. so it's, so and be, and also because of climate change, but also because we have changed our our, our, our farming practice, our farming. Well, we're gonna get into yeah. that. So know. that is also playing a big role. You know, it's not the same farming. It's not. The farming, what I would say, that was aiming first and foremost at yields, which was the case in the 70s. Now I think we are looking at much more balanced farming to reach a ripeness that is quite different, maybe closer to what we were picking 100 years ago, a century ago, than what we were picking in the 70s. This is why in the, in the short life memory champagne has changed a lot since the 70s to now so So we can see 60 years of or 50 or 60 50 years of big changes but if you look at it in a century maybe we are closer today than what we were in the early 1900s
1: you may be right yeah so So there's probably in the end nothing good about climate change but the climate change effects in Champagne, is that in the end a benefit? Or is benefit the wrong word?
3: So far, it's a benefit. Okay. Uh, So far, let's put it that way, the global warming. Right. So far is a fair way to say it (coughs) because this this
1: ain't going in the right direction.
3: Exactly. So far, the global, we were at the limit of maybe being too wet, not ripe enough. Now we are riper and less wet so that's an improvement now so far because we don't know where we go um, I, I should say also that the global the warming is in, the global warming we have two, climate change has two dimensions for me one dimension is the trend which is getting warmer uh, drier and so on but another dimension is uh, More complicated to handle, which is the extreme changes and quick changes from one week to another, from one month to another. You can be, uh, we had it this year. Literally
1: swings.
3: Exactly. Like high, low. Exactly. Not just little bumps. Exactly. We had mid, uh, late August, we had a heat wave. Uh, and the next week, it was a rain like uh, rainy and cold like, like like autumn. And then the next week, you go back to, to heat wave. So it is changing quickly, you know. And, and, and the weather forecast is really good, bad. <laughs> uh, I, you cannot, I think, all, you know, all the prevision, anticipations of weather forecast are always all wrong. The Last summer, we were. Uh, said that we would have a very dry hot summer
1: we had a cool cold wet summer so so if you know that's become the case hmm. what do you do I mean you if you prepare for one it's the other you need to adapt very quickly it's quickness. Yeah. It's, it's adaptability think, and quickness. Yeah.
3: Now, you, when I joined uh, 35 ago, we were picking over three, three three and a half weeks. Now, we pick over two weeks. So, you need to go quicker, faster. Everything has to be done quick. What more. happens to the fruit
1: if you don't get it in quick?
3: Because it goes quickly from the stage. It is not ripe. To it's overripe. It's overripe. Or it's it's clean or it's arthritis infected. So there is a window that is getting shorter, but also not only for picking, also for debudding, for pruning. All All the vineyard work now is reduced to and at the same time we have less and less workforce. Uh, because it's more and more difficult to
1: find pickers, to find... uh, Not by choice, uh, by availability. By availability, because... so In your best efforts, you can't staff it the way you want. So we work hard
3: and we do what is necessary to get some people, but it's hard to to source the people as well. So I think we are in a very difficult uh, situation where you want to do... You have less time to do things, so you need more people. And at the same time, it's you, it's hard to find them, or and this is France. Sometimes the law is so complicated that you cannot hire them. You know, so really because it makes yeah the law the the, the the you need to stop and return and you know short-term contracts and so on. So it's it's to
1: complicate things it's, more. It's
3: it's, very, it's it's getting very complicated.
1: So. <coughs> I mean, part of a biodiverse mm. culture, which we'll get into the specifics, includes people. Ooh. You know, and finding people mm. is an issue. Taking care of them yeah. in the right way, and then all the I, obstacles.
3: You're exactly right. So you, it, does, it does not only include people. I, I, I would be even stronger than you. I think people are at the center mm. of of each of it. And if you think about it, what makes a grand vin? A grand vin, it is the people. They are at the center of it. The people in the vineyard, the people in the cellar, the the people in the creation of the blend is key to the quality. So I think more than ever, people are on the center of the equation. I,
1: you know, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, there's been the discussion in a good way that leans more towards farming. Mm. You said it earlier. I mean, mm. y- you need to farm well and make great grapes, but mm. certainly in the cellar, you could screw it up or make it better. That's been a discussion, you know, for a while, but people are not part of the discussion and they're such an important part of that. Mm. So I'm glad, glad you brought it up. Mm. Um, the grower movement probably has come about, Due to some generational change, mm-hmm. and the fact that you go out and have to seek additional grapes, um, I would think you have certain requirements of these people, and a lot of these people are the growers that have shifted generationally and kind of give a crap about how they farm. Is yeah. that fair to say?
3: Yeah, yeah. <coughs> I think it's it's all moving, and um, uh, I think the grower it's it, so. Coming back on the grower moment, it was your first question. I think it's a great news for champagne. So it can only be great news to have talented, young or not that young people. Both. uh, Both. uh, uh, Making beautiful wines with a different vision, with uh, uh, different statements, different ideas, lots of creativity. And I think creativity is a key word here. Uh, It's not about being small or big. It's creative. What can I do to create new things, to create trend, to create passion, to interact with not our clients, but with our fans? That's what we are talking about. Difference. It's a big difference. It's a big difference. So people follow us. People believe in us, in what we are trying to do. And we need this creativity and this really, um, uh, and I think the grower moment is fantastic for that. And I think it's beauty for Champagne. Um,
1: Before, Before that shift, was it harder to find growers of quality or proper practice or they were always there and the grower movements kind of, you know, highlighting it even more?
3: Yeah, I think it's, it's, it was more difficult. It was. Let's put it that way. When you are not interested in the wine, in the final wine, because the growers in Champagne were just producing grapes. So they had no idea of how good were the grapes in the end because they had only half the story, the harvest story. The winemaking story is what makes you really realize the link to the terroir because as long as you are not wine... You're not terroir. You're fruit, and I think okay. because because the fermentation reveals That's the codable. terroir. Yeah, the fermentation reveals the terroir. This is a, even you, we should stop calling that fermentation. We should call it mineralization. This is kind of you destroy the elements by fermenting them to to keep only the elements, the single elements, and the single elements are terroir. So when when you are in that invested in that process you really understand your terroir. And then it's a virtuous circle. You come back, you improve, and I think it's a, it's a very good trend for champagne that people understand what's after the fruit, uh, what's behind the fruit. So
1: that's a good segue into, you know, a next important <coughs> discussion, um, and that's your farming and your um, winemaking practices. Um, I I say this, you know, very happily and proudly. You are truly a champion of biodynamic and organic farming. Um, You know, you're making that shift. You're almost where you want to be in most places. I'm curious, when did that really start? And what was going through your head that, you know what? tomorrow when I get up, I got to move my butt and this is where we need to go. When was that?
3: I I think you you got the point at the beginning, uh, which is to put at the same level vineyard on the winemaking. When, When you have already established this to say, I need to be good in the vineyard on the winemaking, you realize that whatever you do in the vineyards impacts your winemaking. And, I should even say that what we have invented at Rodrèr is probably craft the wines in the vineyards. Uh, What we were doing before in the blending, uh, 70% was done in the blending. Now it is 70% is done in the vineyard because it's already. How
1: how long ago would you say 70% was done in the blending? Uh, When did
3: that? I would say say 25 years ago. Okay, so the
1: last. The last twenty-five years,
3: yeah, yeah, because we have we have moved thanks to organic farming and uh, and more deep-rooted vines, uh, more balanced yields, uh, a better farming, a better pruning.
1: By the way, talk to me about pruning. There's lateral, yeah. and I mean you. That's is it fair to say that's an innovation or a practice? Yeah, that you felt has an impact.
3: Yeah, I think it's 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 a, it's 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 a great. Um,
1: Lateral versus horizontal. Yeah.
3: Okay. So, the vines. That's that's my great theory. Is that okay. is that vines? Vines are trees. In the end, they want to grow vertical. They don't want to go horizontal. They want to grow to to sit on the tree and go, and seek for sunshine. Sounds natural. Yeah. That's what a vine is aimed for. Mankind has invented. The way to reduce its expression to, to not grow tall, but to grow smaller, let's say bonsai, like a bonsai. And, and, and literally sideways. Yes, and give fruit. I, I agree on that point and because the more you bonsai prune a vine, you make it a small in its expression, the more it will deliver, it will deliver the best fruit. So for sure, you need to reduce this, this um, DNA of a vine that is to go vertical. But we have, because of mechanization, we have put most of our vines horizontal, and I think it's a big mistake, because and it creates a lot of problems, uh, especially with uh, what we call disease, wood disease, because you create wounds. The vines struggles. You put the vine horizontal, and it just wants to go vertical so you prune to put it horizontal and the vines wants to go vertical so it does struggle and it, you create wounds because the,
1: the pruning the is pruning a wound which prune- makes it more susceptible exactly okay. and then so that's not natural
3: that's not natural and on the, the wound dies and the fungus come inside and create uh, so you need to have very good sap flow very regular sap flow on very as
1: vertical as possible, so right. that. But ha- how do you do that? So um, you're not growing trees, exactly. but you're aware that. Exactly. You, so you're minimalizing pruning. Yeah. Or so there is a very.
3: It exists. Huh? This is what uh, the south of Europe call gobelet in pruning, or what Cotroti or Hermitage call échala, which is just go up. You know, just go up, prune, go up, prune, go up, and don't don't go horizontal. And what we have done at Rodrè is redesign our pruning to the Chablis method, keeping all the Chablis style, Chablis pruning, eh, which is a specific Champagne. It has a Chablis name, but it's not from Chablis; it's from Champagne. Okay. Um, And making it more vertical. To have a better sap flow, and we have been working on that for the last 12 years. So,
1: to visualize, Mm. is it more leafy? Is it fuller? Is it growing up a little more instead of trimming down? I I, mean, if you looked at it, is that what you're seeing? Yeah, (coughs) I think it's more leafy in
3: the way that the bunches. Um, the clusters are more located within the leaves; they are not outside.
1: Ah, okay. So,
3: and this is a good, a good, a good technique for, especially for climate change and too much heat, because you protect your leaf, your clusters from too much sunshine. So, uh, I think it grows your fruit within the the vines. And what is really, um, what is really impacted? by this pruning is a regu- the homogeneity, the regularity of bud break. I think because of this pruning, we have a bud break that is very regular. You know, it's not, sort not of the, a
1: natural progression. Yeah. You, you could, do that, this happens, that's a good thing.
3: Yes, and you, as you know, there is a phenomena in the vineyard that we call acrotonia. Acrotonia is uh, the last bud have always more power than the first bud. Because the sap flow go full speed to the last bud. That's how that works. Yeah, exactly, because they want to go vertical. So the the best chance to go vertical is to put a lot of sap flow to the ni- last bud. So you need to reduce this. This I don't to get as much sap flow in each bud, not only the last one. Right. And that's the pruning can. The pruning can help.
1: Um, would you say? So that's a practice that you're doing. Obviously not everyone is doing it and probably not a lot. Um, Is soil, soil regeneration, I guess this is a good chance to talk about what is biodynamics? What is organic? You know, you, it's in the books, Mm. but you through your years have figured your definitions or what works. Um, You know, talk to me a little about that. Yeah, Yeah. Because when I talk to you about biodynamics, I just want people to know there's not a lot of champagne, not a a lot of champagne houses that have committed to biodynamics. And as I said earlier, the scale of rotor is pretty big. So that's a a real hefty commitment.
3: So biodynamic is a... is a philosophy, I should say, or a way of looking uh, of looking at, at your vineyards as a global system, a, a global organism. You know, you don't look at your vineyard just by what you get from each plant or the crop you get from it. You look at your vineyard as a, a circle, of a perfect circle. Um, you take from the soil what ret- return to the soil or you have to return as much as you take. I think this is the, the whole idea of biodynamic is this one, is I take from earth something, from sunshine something. I need to bring it back to the soil, to, the, to, 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 the, to nature. Regenerate. If regenerate. If I don't, at one point, the system dead. is dead because you take too much. So you need to find the circle, the virtuous circle that, if you take so much organic matter, give it back in a form that is slow life as well, not too quick, not, not, um, don't don't think too much in elements. Think in your organic, in the life in your soil, the way the life works, uh, the way the bacteria, the mushroom transform the organic matter into. Clay, um, uh, all the elements, you know. Soil soil is a, is like a matrix, and you need to get it as alive as possible, rich in carbon, and you need to sequestrate a lot of carbon because the carbon you sequestrate right. today is your strength of tomorrow. So not to not of the next week, not of the next vintage, but Long-term of the term next commitment. decade. So if you take too much of it, and I think that's where biodynamics for me is, is is very important. And by the way, there are many biodynamics because in the end, when you when you get used to those elements, you each terroir is different, each climate is different, right. and you don't do the same biodynamic you on each to plot. The so, environment. so in fact, it is in the end to do adapt to each plot what is necessary to maintain this circle of life the most regenerated as possible, the most alive as possible. So into that idea, once you have accepted this idea of our job within nature, which is to maintain nature, then you need to you quickly understand that you need to create biodynamic compost to bring back carbon to the soil. Everything associated. And mushrooms and bacteria and insects. You, you the under- whole,
1: you know, biodiverse exactly. area, you know, keeping the whole area around biodiversity yeah,
3: Exactly. In movement. Then you quickly understand that the less chemical you use on the middle of this, the best you are. Because every chemical is strong. It does uh, has an effect, you know. Uh, many people use herbicides. We don't use any herbicides for the last 20 years. But many people use herbicides because... It's comfortable. I agree. It's 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 the easy go, the easy way to go. But in the end, they kill weeds. They kill grass, but they also kill insects. They also kill mushrooms, and in the end, your soil is not as dynamic. It's the same. If you if you do some soil killing, just ploughing too much, you. Right you cut all the right you need to mushroom, let it so you need to do just a little tilling we say scalp you know right. scalping the grass but minimal than what you have mi- to yeah get. minimal minimum tilling to regenerate your soil <coughs> and last but not least it takes millions of years to create a soil the soil when you find a plot the soil you have here you have has been created by millions of years. Of limestone, and, chalk, other yeah, elements. Exactly. And you bring on this soil you bring a backhoe, very powerful bulldozer or anything, and you teal everything, you move everything. So you destroy you destroy thousand years of a balance that has been established in this soil. So you have to be very careful to this soil. I think biodynamic, in a way, you, is also being more conservatory to your soil, you know, to be more respectful of your soil and say, hey, oh, I'm just here for a while. It's been there well before me. Right. And I just need to nurture it, not to change, change it. It. Yeah.
1: What I You know, I ask this question sometimes. It's... It's kind of an awkward question and, you know, maybe so vague or open, but I want to hear your answer or description. What effects of farming this way and you, you know, kind of walked us through what's... What does it do to the wine? I mean, everyone says it's always more lively. I mean, can you get a little deeper than, li- you know, wh- and you've tasted everything with, without, <coughs> organic, not biodynamic, both? Yeah. So for, first,
3: for, first answer, for me, this is the most powerful answer, is that when you are engaged in a biodynamic farming, you empower your people, your craftsmen, your vignerons, your growers, in the story. So, and you have little chemicals, so you have little, you, you take a lot of risk. It's very risky business, by the way. But, you, so you need the attention of every minute of all your team. <laughs> and just by this attention of every minute, you see things that you didn't see anymore. Little details. But as you know, a great wine is a sum of details. It's not one thing. It's not, not two sure. things. It's a lot of things. So when you have a team on deck looking at every single th- th- details, in the end, your wine is better anyway. So there is all this attention to details that for me is number one. Then, then there are some facts which is, for example, a clear fact that we have discovered quite quickly that when you do biodynamic farming, you have lower pH. You know, the pH is what we call the true acidity, not the acid figure, but the true feeling of acidity is the pH because it regulates, pH regulates all the enzymatic oxygen, oxidative movements. So it is slow cooking, it is slow life, right? Biodynamic. That's a good way to put so, it. So, so you slow down everything, and the wine of biodynamic are more reductive. They are more shy, tight. So some people say it's more alive, more energetic because they are tight. They are not fleshy. They are not fruity. They are tight. They are built to age. They are built to age. As long as you customize your fermentation, your winemaking to this fruit and not say, okay, the, the mistakes many bio do is that they realize after a while that they have a unique fruit. Their fruit is fantastic. So they say, my fruit is fantastic, so I don't I need to do nothing in the winemaking because my fruit is so fantastic. And this is when it starts to be sad for the story of wine because because It doesn't matter how conti- confantati- fantastic is your fruit. If, if there is some wrong, if there are some bad bacteria or some bad uh, uh, microbes right. within your cellar, in the end, they will, they will screw <laughs> the quality of your fruit. And I think what, so we come back to the winemaking philosophy. What is my winemaking target? What's my winemaking ideal? It's to have a, a, a wine that has the purity of the first day of harvest. A wine that will not show any of the transformation I created. You know, a wine that will keep all the DNA, all the purity, all the precision that it has from the beginning.
1: And is that, this term gets thrown around a lot, you know, low intervention, not meddling. That's pretty much not doing a lot of the things that people do and reacting, like you said, to the few things you have to,
3: right? I'll put it differently, if you don't mind. Of course. Uh, Because I think it's always very difficult to say there is a good and the bad, or the people who do a lot and the people who do little. I think it's just do what is necessary, just have the good understanding. Like a chef, when he has a fish that has a certain amount of fat, of fat,
1: what temperature I should cook it? You react to that individual yeah. thing, you not adapt. a boiler plate. Exactly. Right. So, and, and vintages vary and the grape plots vary.
3: Yeah, exactly. So put your
1: winemaking
3: knowledge to reveal the fruit and not, not to control it or not to make it, Big or to what you want. The biggest mistake of a winemaker, often by the way, is to uh, have a cl- clear idea of what style you want. But when you have a clear idea of what style you want, it's you make the wines enter into your square of your mind. But mindset. doesn't
1: Champagne get accused of that more because we'll talk there about are it. houses with house style we'll and talk to about get there, you have to do this, Sam, this, and this. Sam will which is about the, it to his collection. Yeah. <laughs> That's collection. All right. <laughs> All right, listen, we have to take a quick break. Um, we're talking to uh, Jean-Baptiste Lecaillon. Um, when we come back, I want to talk about his Champagne's and really what goes into it, which is a further discussion of what we've been talking about. So you're listening to The Great Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back with Jean-Baptiste.
2: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin— Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com.
1: Okay, we're back. We're back with my guest, Jean-Baptiste Le Carillon. Jean is the... He's the guy at Louis Roederer. Anything that goes over your tongue, he's responsible. All right, so let's talk about the champagnes. But it's not just, it's everything that, you know, goes around and through it. So I want to talk about that. I have a bunch of questions. Um, I do want to focus, because we don't have all the time in the world, on the collection series. And if we can, you know, who can let you out of the room without talking about Christelle for a second? Um, so as a lead-in, one of the more significant changes you made at Louis Roederer was the recent shift from what was a very terrific and popular Champagne, your Brew Premier series, to what is now the Collection series. So to get the obvious stuff out of the way, you know, why and how did this come about? Again, you woke up and you said, wait, no more... What happened here?
3: No, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's one more time adaptation to what's happening, what's happening in Champagne, what's happening in the vintage. By the way, you know, I think it all for me. The re, uh, I had uh, um, it all started with 2002 vintage, where uh, that year uh, was such a beautiful year. Every single tank
1: was beautiful. A famous Champagne year at this point, right? exactly.
3: So, everyone was really showing beautiful expression. And we came to the recipe of Brut Premier to make Brut Premier. And as you know, the recipe of non vintage in Champagne and Brut Premier was to make the same taste every year. So we Which had, is
1: what we just talked before the break about a style, a exactly, house style. Exactly. That so, didn't sit well with you any further?
3: No. So, same recipe every year to make, so, same percentage of everything, roughly, to. Maintain the style from one year to another and reserve once just to play and correct a little bit. That was a great idea of the 80s. You know, again, late harvest, we had to create. And what was making for me the big difference between a non-vintage and vintage category was the ripeness. Vintage fruit was ripe. Non-vintage fruit was not ripe. So you had to correct it in a way, by
1: blending and so on. So it was... Why wasn't it as ripe? Just because of the plots or yeah, they were younger? Exactly. Or all the obvious exactly. things that make it exactly. not as good. Exactly, because okay. it,
3: was, uh, it was not ripe, so very acidic. So you had to do full mallow, uh, green sometimes. So you had to use reservoirs, um, while a vintage had the fleshiness, the texture, and could be handled by itself. So, So that was the case before. But because of climate change, and because of the change of viticulture, now we have more regular quality higher qualities everywhere. Oh, and this is again why the grower movement is so popular, not only in Grand Cru and premier cru, but also in other cru in meunier and so on. you have some 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 growers who are, who do great job in some places. so things were changing in front of our eyes, and we we realized that.
1: That's not how you wanted to continue yeah, to not, make this exactly. popular. Yeah, couvée. so
3: we, we were making two categories of wines in, when we were blending in the winter, uh, vintage wines where there was a freedom of creation, creativity. We were creating lots of beautiful wines, different from one vintage to another, with a good, great wine story behind. Why this is why fifteen is different than fourteen, and so on. But brut premier, non vintage, and no story except his recipe. It's good wine, and boring, and boring, and just um, maybe completely um, uh, locked into the segment of aperitif. Because because you don't at the aperitif you don't speak about the wine. You no. just have fun, you you meet the people and then and then, when you go for your dinner, then you start to look at the wines and discuss the wine. so this for me, a wine for a wine geek a champagne lover, it, I, I was unhappy with that, and the grapes could deliver better. so we we started to think about how can we, how can we Take advantage on this and create the multi-vintage of the 21st century. That,
1: Isn't that when you started committing to biodynamics too?
3: It's part of it as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it came after. But It came bi- after, but, but, but not- maybe Maybe biodynamic for me was more obvious and more from day one for vintage wines. And maybe not that obvious for non-vintage at the time wines. And don't forget that for non-vintage as well, or multi-vintage, even for collection, collection, we still buy some grapes from growers. So we had to. It's not only. It's not only our vineyards.
1: But you you have strong requirements. Exactly. We talked about that.
3: So that's the first idea. The second idea is that the new Champagne is changing. There are. So you call it the grower. Movement. I call it the terroir-driven movement, which is maybe slightly different because you don't need to be a grower to be
1: terroir-driven. TDM, the terroir-driven movement. Exactly. We're coining that today. Yeah.
3: So terroir-driven movement, a strong wish of new talents, a strong movement of new talents in Champagne, with coming in charge with lots of creativity. You know, that goes from way beyond the bubbles. Coteau Champenois. You know, doing some red, some white, new varietals.
1: Coteau Champenois is a still wine out of the region. Exactly. So people
3: know. So reviving. This is a a revival. Very
1: interesting stuff.
3: So I think there is a strong moment of creativity in Champagne. And last but not least, we talk about it, climate change. So if you add those three elements, terroir-driven movement plus creativity plus um, which requires a lot of freedom and creativity, by the way, plus climate change, then you need to say, I need to stop my vintage I need to create something new, something more terroir-driven,
1: clearly more terroir-driven. Kind, kind of brilliant. Mm-hmm. Tell me about some of the things, you know, you're doing. You're working with... Perpetual reserves, yes. the way you want to do mm-hmm. it. Um, You're—I I always get this pronunciation wrong. But you're not chaptelizing a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, some mallow, mm-hmm. not a, too much, not a lot. Um, I think a commitment to stainless and and, and some oak more too. Oak, more oak. So tell me about all those things. That, that was part of the change in the recipe too, right?
3: Yes, yes. So uh, so there are all different levels of. Um, maybe reserve perpétuelle is the strongest of all, but maybe I will talk the last of it because I think it has a very specific purpose. Um, let's talk first about uh, terroir-driven. Terroir-driven, uh, we have changed the grapes from our vineyards. No problem. Uh, we purchase grapes. From growers. So we have changed our contract with the growers for collection. Now we don't buy Meunier or Pinot Noir or Chardonnay from this village. We buy one plot. This is a plot that is collection.
1: So, so you understand and know exactly, exactly what's coming out
3: of it. Exactly. We have chosen the plots with the grower. And we, decide, we visit it three times a year and wow. we, we, we decide the picking dates with the grower as well. And the farming is discussed with the grower. So we have a much more, um, uh, we are hands-on into the farming. Again, com- control the farming. This is also multi-vintage. The non-vintage, you were inheriting the fruit at harvest time and good or bad. Multi-vintage, you need to, direct your fruit from the even if it's not your vineyards have a good relationship with the grower select the the plot and make it my part of the job in doing that is to ferment all my wines including purchased grapes as I do for Cristal single plot fermentation all our wines now and this is new with collection because with Brut Premier we were doing some pre-blend at harvest time now, every juice that comes in the cellar with collection, collection
1: is handled like crystal, single vineyard fermented. So you have over 450 plots in 250, 40 plus hectares, but you look at it as plot sites. Every plot is single. That's a big undertaking.
3: Yes. But this is the only way. Right. This is the only to get the results to, that you, you want. You want to make terroir-driven wines, you need to let the terroir shine. Right. From and not or not pre blend or anything, do the final blending uh, just, just 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 as a
1: fine tuning, not as
3: a style building.
1: Right, mm, that's that's. But a little sidebar thing: you sit here and listen to this, and you go, "Oh my god, this guy's going through so much." I probably can't afford this champagne because. <laughs> and the crazy thing, and we'll talk about it towards mm. the end, is this particular mm. wine. The collection mm. is the quality to value is yeah. crazy. We're mm. not talking about, mm. you know, so that that's really a nice thing too. Yeah. Um, so
3: it's it's done on a large scale, and so the second ID. So terroir-driven. The second idea is, let's face it, climate change is an opportunity, but it's also a threat. Right. It's an opportunity because more ripeness, but it's a threat because of lack of acidity. Maybe tomorrow we could have less freshness into our wine. So this is what I've been calling for the last 10 years. I've done some, some masterclasses in London at 67 on that. Uh, Ten years ago, I called I, my, the, the 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 title was "Fight for Freshness." We had to fight for freshness because freshness is the DNA of champagne, and champagne must be light. Champagne must be salivating. Champagne must be not heavy. Champagne must be easy to a pleasure to drink. Very, and you need, and this is my fight for freshness. I want to maintain that. If I don't have acidity as high as before. I need to reduce my malolactic fermentation to keep some acidity. And I also need to to find some new freshness somewhere else that can be phenolics. Slight bitterness can bring a feeling of freshness. So you're a big phenolics guy.
1: Yeah, I'm a phenolic guy. Yeah. <laughs> just just without... A good a, phenolics no, guy. No, I know. I mean, it's probably an obsession of yours. Just tell people as we talk about it, ha- as it applies to what you do and making champagne, what is phenolics? It's a compound? Yeah. It's a lot of compound.
3: Phenolics is what, in champagne, it's very simple. Phenolics is what you find in the skin.
1: All the champagne. Is it that simple? The skin of the grape? <laughs> exactly. That's where the phenolics yeah, are? Yeah,
3: in, in the seeds as well. The okay, peeps. right. But peeps, you, you need a lot of alcohol and uh, maceration. We don't do it in, we don't extract them too much. But so all the champagne technique is done to avoid any contact with the skin. So we press quickly, low pressure to avoid to extract too, too, much, too much product from, from phenolics. And it made sense to do that uh, in the 70s, especially when you had uh, unripe phenolics. Because if you extract unripe phenolics, this is veggie. Right. This is green. This is green. This is not interesting. But thanks to our new farming and climate change, now we have some very interesting phenolics. Not all, but some Pinot Noir phenolics, exceptionally, especially the Pinot Noir on chalk. Mm not for, uh, necessarily the Pinot Noir on clay, on, but the Pinot on chalk can give these salivating phenolics if you work them properly and select them properly. So we have spent a lot of time working them to add an extra dimension. They also add... Uh, it's okay. They, they also add another element... It's a good background. ...which is, which is to... Um, the aromatics, because the fr- w- the closer you go to the skin, the more aromatics you will extract because they are in the skin. So it's a delicate. So you, you can give some aromatic freshness, which I call not only acid, but aromatic freshness within within, within the phenolic, f- so you can find this. Oak fermentation is also a strong builder, uh, builder not of... of freshness as such but it helps stretching the fruit in fact when you ferment in oak a fruit can be seen as a sphere Uh, flesh fleshy fruit um, round fleshy with a kind of um, textural textural deliciousness but it lacks it, it lacks the lightness. You need to give to the fruit some more lightness.
1: And you lean more towards a lighter toast, right? Yeah. I mean um, that the you, white you, toast, you, you, what I call white yeah, toast. Yeah, you can control it. That's yeah. important to what yeah. you're saying. What about perpetual reserve? Is okay, that the so opportunity where you have some control on how yeah. to... Yeah.
3: So the, the last... Element is, so I talk about terroir driven, about the new freshness. The last element, which is very interesting, is what I call the finesse, the textural finesse. Um, You know, one more time, when you compare vintage and non-vintage category, a non-vintage usually three years, except three years on lees in the bottle. on On a vintage, usually five, six, seven years. This is a moment of autolysis. And the more time you leave your wine on lees, the more they will get this oiliness coming from the yeasty character that needs a lot... Oily how? To the mouthfeel? To the mouthfeel, yeah. And there
1: also, is toasty, that the biscuity, the toasty? The biscuity
3: and so on. Okay. Uh, there is a waxy texture coming into it, as well as this, the smokiness, the toastiness of autolysis. So... Uh, on collection categories, this is a wine that will age for uh, three years only. So I don't have the time to do it in the bottle. So I need to do it before the bottle to have it in terms of complexity. And this is what Reserve Perpetuel brings because I age my Reserve ah. Perpetual, and I get the waxy texture, I get the smoky feeling and the freshness, the salivating freshness that is unique, and this comes from one-third. And this is a réserve perpétuelle, is one-third of the blend. So it's a strong portion of the blend.
1: Right. So if this, the 244 is based on everything you just <laughs> described, yeah. it does come from a vintage. What was the vintage 19. year? 19. 19. Okay. So it's 19 and all those other... Exactly. The, the ...perpetual reserves. Exactly. A stainless oak. Exactly. You know, all of that stuff.
3: So it's a 19, if you want to summarize, with all the elvage, the power of elvage and the knowledge of Louis-Ordre to really capture at the same time. And this is the idea of, cole- of collection. And this is why it is numbered, 244, is to capture at the same time. The vintage characteristic, which is concentration, chalkiness, mm. and this is a, what 19 is about. So you let the vintage shine, and 243 was not the same, and 242 two was again different. So there is, you accept to have difference, slight differences. Let the terroir shine. That's what
1: it should be, not, w- not the formula. Exactly. Exactly. Um- Tell me one last thing, and this is this is kind of a nerdy question, but I, I think it tags back to you. What is jetting? Mm. Isn't that something you do that not everyone does? Oh, I think now it, more and more people it, do. It, it's becoming more of a. Yeah. What, what is that in champagne?
3: So jetting, jetting is uh, it comes from the beer industry. <laughs> and uh, i uh, You grew up around. It. I grew yeah. up around that um, because beer has, doesn't have the same stability as as champagne. We, cover, we used to cover beer with nitrogen um, to have the headspace of the bottle. At the time you disgorge, when you remove the lees, add the dosage, ready for shipment, put the cork back on. There is a headspace between the wine and the, top. the cork right. that is full of oxygen, oh, air and oxygen. This is really uh putting the wine into an oxydé which has been kept on reduction very very reductive outside of oxygen for 3 years you put it with oxygen so you 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 really we call it a shock in in in, in the cellar the shock of disgorging but the wine change uh, change it's a completely different world so and the wine evolves faster so the idea was to sh- slow down this moment and to let the wine keep its track on the reductive side, not move too fast because of disgorgement, stay on the fresh reductive side. And so we cover the headspace now with carbon dioxide, which is just a drop, high-pressure drop, letting the vines, the, the wine f- firm and cover the headspace Fill the headspace with carbon dioxide, so you and then you apply your coke. So in fact, it's one more time slow slow life. You reduce right. you reduce
1: oxygen. Right. Um, that's interesting. I don't think a lot of people know about it. All right, we're not wrapping up yet, but we're getting close to the end. I want you to do my wine list. And then at the end of the show, we're going to pick up the collection and, and, you know, taste it and evaluate it. You know, we've discussed it enough. Um, Let's talk about Cristal quickly. It doesn't deserve to be talked about, (coughs) but this is the most base inane question, but I have to throw it at you is what makes it so legendary? I mean, people fawn over it unlike, you know, other champagnes and wines.
3: I think it, it, it is so legendary because of it is the first prestigious cuvée. Eh? It is the first time a Champenois decided to bottle in a specific, beautiful bottle under, for Tsar Alexander II of Russia in 1876. So I think it has this elegance into the bottling, into the labeling, into um, that doesn't date 20 years ago or 30 right. years ago.
1: The clear it's, bottle. Yeah,
3: it's 150 years ago. So it is it is the king or the godfather of all prestigious cuvées of champagne. If champagne is what it is today, in, in in prestigious appellation with a big name, it is a lot because, due to Crystal, because of this cristal Uniqueness that gave a lot of ideas to the next prestige cuvée, and so right. on.
1: Right, it's the history first to do it's it, the first. maintaining exactly. You know, doing a few unique, unique things like the clear bottle.
3: Exactly, um, and then and then the, the genius of Lloret in that in that moment was to collect the forty five plots, who make crystal the forty five D, which are mid slope. The very specific.
1: Chuckiest. We talked about the plots. Yeah. Now you take it to the next level with exactly. crystal. Exactly. Yeah.
3: Chuckiest. So this is Grand Cru. Chuckiest. We talked about the vines and the bonsai. Bonsai vines because <laughs> they are very old, buds coming from our old vineyards. So they have been making Cristal for one hundred and fifty years. Wow. We 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 cultivate them and we develop them ourselves. So there is a, there is a long uh, if craftsmanship is in our job in the vineyards every day, I think it's haute couture for, for, for Cristal. And um, we do a lot of work on, on this wine. But at the end, it, it comes from such a unique terroir that um, right. it, has, it has this luminous transparency that is so champagne in fact. So I think it It's it the carries, perfect example of yeah, that. It
1: carries everything. Um, do you think... Do you think champagne is still as misunderstood as it has been? You know, it's a celebratory drink. Mm. Whether you liked it or not, Cristel was like a big club wine, bottle service wine. It was like this status thing, more than others. Um it may not get the credit it deserves as a food wine, which you and I could do a whole show on the compatibility of that. I mean, I know that, you know, the understanding and sh- acceptance of champagne has made strides. Are, are we there yet? And we just talked about what it takes to make it, you know, not an easy thing, but is champagne where it should be as far as how people perceive it?
3: No, I, I think, I think it's, um, it's, Yes and no. I think it's, it's, it's getting back, I think, finally, and I've seen it over my 35 years of experience, it's finally getting back to wine lovers. Uh, maybe it was not 30, 30 years ago, and I was frustrated as a young winemaker to see only people looking at celebration. I think now I can tell you I see a lot of them. Very young, but not only young people, very knowledgeable about crystal.
1: They're paying attention. To
3: paying it. attention, <clears throat> discovering that champagne is a wine. And I think in the... What's happening in the world of wine because of climate change as well, where still wines are getting riper and riper, more more alcohol, champagne has a... Has, has a a unique opportunity to show, because of its lightness and freshness, to stay on the on this side of things, uh, of not being too heavy, right. too whiny, staying on the gastronomic side. It's a
1: good position to be exactly. in, done right,
3: yes. done well. And we are clearly on the gastronomic side. And I think that maybe the next shift, if you think about the next 30 years, I hope that… The shift will happen where, of course, we stay on the cocktail and uh, aperitif, but celebration. But I would love to see one part of champagne, like ours, shifting back to food, wine, or to more gastronomy. Yeah, instead
1: of bringing a white and a red to oh, exactly. a dinner, bring exactly. a champagne and a red. Exactly, It goes great with salad, seafood, or you know, which is a lot of first courses. Mm. Um, a couple more questions, and then I want to ask you the uh, Questions for our wine list. Um, what's kept you around Rotor for thirty-five years? That's a pretty impressive tenure. Mm. Obviously, they leave you alone. They trust what you do. I mean, what? What? That's what is it? Is it that?
3: No, I think. I think you uh,
1: shared vision
3: first. Uh, I share. I share the vision of the family and the passion of the family, and I think I have a unique. And this family has built an asset of terroir that is unique. I think, honestly… The crystal plots. Exactly. (laughs) Right. No one has what we have. Right. And what we have done over the last 20 years is to not only have them, we had them, but to farm them in a perfect way. So, I think they have never been as good as today. That's commitment. That's commitment. Shared commitment. commitment. Exactly. And this is what maybe I brought… In my tenure and uh, what uh, I'm sure will stay for a long time is that idea of uh, but I could not have done it on any, on a lower quality so I think Rodreur, if I stayed at Rodreur it was your answer it's because of the people of the family of course but also because the palette of what you're working with and nobody else can do that in champagne. Nobody can achieve that level of quality in champagne.
1: That's impressive. Um, last question. I don't ask this to everyone, but I ask it to a lot of people. Best glass to drink champagne out of and what type of room temperature best enjoyed? Okay.
3: First, <coughs> on the glass, I don't like to be, give it, I don't like to give lessons. I think everybody has his own Feeling with with wine, All right? So uh,
1: don't preach, recommend. No,
3: yeah, yeah. See, if you want, I think I think for crystal, I like the I like the wines that are round, and I love I like the wine the glasses that have enough uh, volume, not too small, to get uh, to get the full wine dimension of it, but. If you want to have the freshness or don't need the freshness, you can go on the narrow side. Everything is good, is fine with me on the glass side. Right. Temperature, I have a more a clearer uh, view. I think it's good to be... I've been on the warm side for a while. Now I'm coming back on the cooler side.
1: But not too cool.
3: No, I mean... Nine, I think the
1: wine opens up a little <laughs> warmer. True. Nine,
3: nine degrees, 10 degrees. Okay. When you serve the, the wine, but if you have... A large glass then it warms up quite quickly ah. so let the glass Keep do the job right. right let the glass do do the job
1: but don't start too high because if you start too high you can be disappointed good recommendations mm-hmm. All right, Jean-Baptiste, I have a thing called a wine list. Five questions. I've done it over almost 300 times. I've asked everyone the same questions. Don't dwell on these. Um, don't take too long. Let's buzz through them. So here's the first question. What are you drinking now? What's in your refrigerator? What are you curious about? Do the change of seasons shift what you drink? You know, are you just stuck tasting a lot of champagne because that's what you do? What are you drinking now?
0: I
3: drink a lot of things, um, and I'm always hunting for um, a, a curiosity. Something new, I don't know. something. Um, Anything
1: I'd, of late that yeah, you stumbled on? Tell yeah, me.
3: Re- recently I'm uh, quite excited about some Etna Rosso. Uh, Terrific. Which I found so, uh, white so elegant. Red. White and red. Uh, so Etna is for me a very interesting region at the moment, but I'm coming back to Montalcino as well, so uh which
1: i had uh, forgotten maybe a little bit so i think it's side- so you're familiar with Montalcino. you yeah. dropped it and now you're revisiting it yeah. so that's what you're drinking now what give me something else one more
3: uh one more uh, what I, what i'm drinking um uh, Burg- i always bring burgundy, burgundy? <laughs> I, okay i keep i keep at and Burgundy has This a, is an
1: unfair question, but are you always drinking <coughs> name Burgundies, fancy burgundies, or you're branching out and trying an aligote or uh, macane, yeah. you know?
3: Yeah, it's the same. I think Burgundy is moving as well. Aligote is very interesting. You have some beautiful aligote around, but it's great to come back to your ba- I think I think in one journey you need to have as much surprise or things you don't know yes. as
1: classics. Right, so you can do the comparison yeah, exactly. and the others try something new. And, and I can also taste some natural wine, by the way. Eh? Okay, well, a lot of Burgundy is natural. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't mention, but I post your answers on social media. Our listeners love to hear what guys. All right, favorite wine and food pairing. Not what is the best, but what is your favorite? I know you won't eat it every night, every month, but what is that
3: perfect... The, the magic dream. I just come, come back from Japan... And the sushi sashimi uh, champagne is just uh,
1: and you're talking just a tuna salmon yeah, tuna, white fish red red okay. tuna
3: so all
1: sushi fishes go great
3: with yeah we, we and especially with collection two four four I agree with you I, I think that's
1: a killer lineup a good sushi yeah. menu and a great champagne all right um, see if you can answer this and by answering it whatever you say you're not excluding anyone or ranking anything. But do you have any favorite wine bars and/or restaurants that, when you go in, their knowledge of the wine, the food, their selection, the vibe? I mean, is there anywhere you know around you, there, or even in New York? You mean, yeah? And, and like I said, if you mention something that's not your favorite, it's just things play. Can you
3: no, think of it? Uh, yeah, we are in New York, close to uh, Aldos. Aldos. So Somme, I love, so Aldo's, I love Aldos. So uh, Le Bernadine
1: and Aldos. Yeah, Som's wine bar.
3: Yeah, it is always exciting. Uh, recently, I was in Bourg-en-Bresse. I don't know if you know Bourg-en-Bresse. In uh, it is close to Lyon in France, and I went to uh, La Brasserie du Theatre, which is a, they have a crazy wine list.
1: Amazing wine list. Did you always always know of this place? No, or you I kind of stumbled I, on I it.
3: Went, I stopped. I stopped by. Someone told me you, you opened the there. list and said, "Oh my and god!" And the wine list was amazing. What I love, what I love in space, places now is those new places you find. They have the great wine list at a at a reasonable price. That's what makes and it. And the great. food is simple to the product, and then you can. We drink more than what you eat for, you know? (laughs) That's
1: more of an art than it sounds. Yeah, yeah. Um, Those are good ones, and I'm going to post those. All right, fourth question. Favorite all-time wine. When I started the show, it seemed important to me that if I have a guy like Jean-Baptiste across from me, I want to hear the rarest, most expensive wine he ever drank. I thought that was cool. Wait, wait, wait. You the best? (laughs) No, no. I don't care about that anymore. You know what I care about? we talked about your travels earlier in the show I want to know that wine or few wines that made that impression on you that was a gateway that influenced the way you thought that and I think part of it was that 14 year old Dujac made something like that yeah. that was not life changing but mm. put, what's what's that wine
3: um, the 78 uh, Claude Laroche uh, definitely from Dujac is part of them I, I would add. I would add. Uh, Nineteen um, sixty-one Aubryon. Okay, classic uh, year for me. This is uh, one of the benchmark of um, great. Uh,
1: so these you remember, and these when you finish them, yeah. it was just yeah. the way you thought about. Nineteen seventy-four Heights Martha's Vignette. Well, that, I wish you can get some of that. Yeah. I had that. Yeah. Um, all right, those are good ones. Three <laughs> is plenty. All right here's a tricky question, and some people. Do things where it makes them easy to answer this. I'm not sure this could be as easy for you. I want you to recommend to me the best wine around $15, $20, $22 US retail. So you're going, so my kids are in their late 20s, early 30s. They can't afford gifts for 60, 70 or go to a restaurant 90 what would you recommend as a red and as a white? And I'll give you a little tip-off. Muscadet makes terrific wines if you get (coughs) the right producer at a good price. So what's the best value wines, red and white, that you can think of?
3: It's it's, it's a a good question. I think you have some... See, you have to think about great varieties as well that are crowd-pleaser and definitely... By the
1: way, you mentioned something earlier. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, Aetna is throwing out some very good values. So uh, that's a little tip, but keep
3: thinking yeah. about it. Et, et, et not definitely. Um, I think rhone uh, Valley, rhone Valley uh, can create some...
1: Uh, Where in the like, Rhone? Like, what are you looking at? Uh, if like, you,
3: in this bracket of price, it would be more...
1: Uh, like uh, uh, Côte d'Horne? or
3: Chateau um, uh, Chateauneuf, but not... Uh, yes. Would, would be very, okay. very interesting. I think one very... Not to... Uh, on this category of prices...
1: Why well, they want to make it easy for you.
3: Yeah, it's not easy. It's not an easy one. I think one region, one wine region that is forgotten it and is. that can really create some crowd-pleasing wines, red wines, is Beaujolais.
1: Agree, but sadly, the, even the village-level wines is more creeped up from 1820 to like 26. But that's the, not bad. <coughs> that. All right, you didn't... Answer white so quickly. Can you think of a white White wine? Yeah, that you know, in that value category.
3: I like the um, Portuguese whites at the moment. Great. I'm, um, I like the, the Arinto, the Arinto uh, coming from um, Lisboa, from the Lisboa region. Um, or you have some beautiful Vusinho or Rapicato from, uh, from Roduro, which are. Um, impressive and, and very, very accessible. In terms I, of I, I
1: agree, and I think, by the way, the reds there are pretty good too. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, Portugal mm. as a country, mm. red and white. All right, good job on that. Thank you. It's a little harder for you than other, other people. All right, we're going to end this show with a segment called the Weekly Wine Sip every week when I get the opportunity to sit across from a winemaker. Um, We do the weekly wine sip where we can taste and evaluate, and you can tell us a little about this wine. Um, Today, we're going to taste a very important current wine, the Louis Rotor Collection, which we've talked extensively about, the current vintage, the current availability, the 244, which you mentioned, the basis is the 19 vintage. Um, Tell me more about this. What didn't we discuss?
3: I think it's a, it's it's coming from a great year and um, so
1: happy with the vintage year.
3: Yeah, it's it's it and was, you're not always dealt that. Yeah, so you- it, it's it's a great vintage. Mm-hmm. So I think we can we in this blend we try to let the vintage really speak. And there is this chalky, saline, salivating finish, and it is super concentrated as well. So we use the Reserve Perpetual to soften this concentration and make it more accessible because it's...
1: That's where you look at the reserve and say, what do I need the reserve for to make this the wine that reflects... Yeah. Right. Not to make it a house style, but to...
3: Keep keep the idea of the vintage that is concentrated and chalky, but make it on the light, on the more accessible style, you know, not so, not to be, not, you don't need to wait 15, 20 years for one wine like this. You can have it after four years, five years, but you can age 10, 15 years as well. And this that's is a impressive. new thing with this category of collection, collection is that you can age 10, 15 years without any problem. So that's, that's, maybe-
1: a, that's a great opportunity mm. for a wine at this price level. Exactly. You know, and, and exactly. the nuances of holding it 10 years, yeah. you know, is really a different enjoyable.
3: It's not the price of a vintage, but it's almost a vintage yeah. in the making.
1: Yeah. Um, tell me about the blend. I mean, you're we working with three grapes, yeah. right?
3: Yeah, three grapes, and what we have done with collection, I think the big step with collection is that Brut Premier used to be 40% Pinot, 40% Chardonnay, 20% Meunier. Now we are clearly Chardonnay dominant. So there is more Chardonnay. Why? It's also because we want to promote the lightness. And Chardonnay is lighter than Pinot Noir, especially in the climate change. Chardonnay keeps more freshness. So more Chardonnay, 42% Chardonnay here. And a large amount, unusually high level of
1: Meunier as well, 26%. That's which
3: high. Is, is very high for our our Take odor. a
1: second and tell me, you, you you talked about the characteristics of Chardonnay, it gives it that lightness and all that. When you blend Pinot Meunier and Pinot Noir, what, what characteristics do they add? Meaning when you're looking for something, you'll do <coughs> a little less or yes. a little
3: more. Pinot Noir brings fruit, structure, um, umami. Uh, it's very, it's fleshy, it brings a lot. You know, Pinot Noir is a king. Uh, Chardonnay is more mineral, lighter, more citrusy. Meunier is in between. Uh, It doesn't have the power of Pinot Noir, but it's fruitier than than Chardonnay. So, in a... Is it fruitier than Pinot Noir or not? It can be fruitier, more floral in a way. And... It's very important in a year, powerful year of richness and concentration to, to rely on Meunier to bring, the, to bring some more lightness as well, not nice. to be too heavy. Pinot Noir can sometimes make, make, make very whiny, big wines, and you have to be careful not to be, and maybe this is one of the threats of grower movement today, by the way, which is, is to, be, to go maybe too much on the Burgundy side, ah. and don't forget that we are Champagne
1: right and we need to stay on the light too right yes all right let's do a quick evaluation so let's start with color the color to me is kind of a classic champagne color it's not light and it's not a dark right it's got that it's quite bright quite bright. yeah and you know clear beautiful Mm. small bubbles Mm. all right i stink at this so i defer to you put it up to your nose what are the nose descriptors that you get on this
3: I get, I get some smokiness, some light smokiness, and some citrusy, floral elements here that are a, yes. a, a bouquet, what I call of freshness. It's very spring bouquet, very floral, bright, um, fresh. Floral, uh, right, with some citrus. Yeah.
1: Where does the smoky come from, the oak? Uh, réserve perpétuelle, on, okay. on a little bit of oak. All right, now let's do mouthfeel. The mouthfeel, is it? traditional is it a little heavier is it lighter i know each vintage varies but champagne has a certain profile what's the mouthfeel is this a medium mouthfeel yeah, uh,
3: it, it has a very nice it's a concentrated year so you had a nice texture from right the beginning it's a little, little
1: bigger on the mouth a little yeah. more texture
3: yeah it's quite oily on the mid palate as well but it is quickly on the mid palate. You get this chalkiness or freshness or this line of acidity. So that
1: take that to the next step. Does the palate resemble the nose? What do you get on the palate here? you still get that floral citrus or what else is introduced?
3: I get more fruit on the palate. I get more... What um, kind of fruits? Uh, more uh, peach, um, mm. fleshy, uh, pear, pear. Um, it's more uh, orchard fruit, you know, on the palate. And uh, I think you can feel the Pinot Noir signature here. Yes,
1: I'm glad you pointed and, that out because we talked about
3: it. Yes, that. and at the end, you get this freshness and this acidity and this
1: citrus elements of Chardonnay. So you talk about acidity, which is a good segue, because acidity is great with food. This vintage, not champagne, What's a good wine and food pairing, or a bunch?
3: Come back to this sushi idea.
1: So the sushi thing's yeah, a home run anyway. Perfect. What else?
3: I, I will stay on all um, scallops. Um, you know, tartare. Um, Raw fish, but raw meat as well, you know, like a a, carpaccio, exactly. Carpaccio, a little sauce on it, beef beef tartare, you know, beef tartare,
1: right? That because of the fat, the fatness, but it's also blended with a little mustard Worcestershire sauce, which it could hold up, exactly capers, exactly. Um, so this collection is what the third or fourth you've made, third.
3: officially but there is a force with so 241 in magnums
1: okay so three vintages later what have you learned <laughs> you know uh, is this the favorite cuz it's the latest or uh, you know you got dealt everything right no, a good no. vintage year knowledge yeah. of
3: on this on this edition I have increased the pressure. There is a bit more bubbles as well because there was okay. more
1: concentrated. So was the, that a reaction to the last vintage? Exactly. I, okay. Because
3: it was such a concentrated and powerful year, I wanted to give it lightness. So I went from five point five kilos of pressure to five point eight. That little difference a little makes, makes the bit difference? Ma- make more That's crazy. Light lighter and I dropped the dosage. The previous one
1: was eight grams. This is seven grams. Okay. Um does that mean I hate asking this. Is it a little drier because of that? Or that's yeah. not necessary. Yeah, yeah. Teeny bit. Yeah, because yeah, it, which works with all the other elements. Because
3: it's concentrated, so right. you have this sweetness of fruit that you need to, to make a beer. All right,
1: so fresher. we just tasted the Louis Rotorer Collection two forty-four, which is the current um Rotorer collection champagne on the market um it's available now and we don't need to discuss prices but i can tell you for quality to value as far as price um it's terrific you know i want to let you know every year at the end of the year i have josh green on from um Wine, his spirit. wine and spirit and we do a year end show and i let him pick the topics and i think it was last year or the year before he brought this in we talk about the year through wines mm. and you know it was really a, a discussion of quality mm. of biodynamics mm. of accessibility you know with price consistency mm. you know and and i knew that but for him to talk about it mm. you know it was really nice and mm. you know i think he turned a lot of people on it all right Jean-Baptiste, we have to wrap up. Let me do a quick wrap-up. I need to get some info from you, and then we're out of here. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at nation.com. That's Sam at the Grape Nation. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your pods. Um, leave a review if you like the podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at SBenRuby and on X at BenRuby. <clears throat> I know that's two different addresses, but you can always use the hashtag The Great Nation to find us on both. We're on Facebook at The Great Nation. As I mentioned, and I think you should be very interested in this, we will post jean Baptiste wine list answers some terrific recommendations there and a little more detail we discussed the collection 244 during our weekly wine sip um, so i'll be posting that on our social media sites tell me a few things jean baptiste if people want to know more about Rotorer, the wines the history the selections what's the best place to go to the Rotorer website
3: rather website for sure or also social media Instagram.
1: so let's uh, talk about social media yeah. there's the louis rotor site
3: yeah instagram or uh, facebook or right and, also, and it's louis rotor yeah okay. and there is a twitter account which i take care of i i, I I'm do i do the feeding of the information on the twitter okay so that's under your control what way.
1: about if people are listening to this and they say that Jean-Baptiste, he sounds like a pretty cool guy. Where can I follow him on social uh, media? So you,
3: you, go, you go on Instagram on uh, JBLFizz. JBLFizz.
1: So that's J-B- is a boy, L-Fizz. That's his site. I've been following it for a long time. It's a very fun site. You get a sense of where he is or what mm. he's doing, whether he's in the harvest, in the field, or he's mm. sitting in New York wasting his time with me or whatever. Mm. Um, all right. I want to thank our guest, this was thrilling for me to meet you and to talk yep. about this. I want to thank our guest, Jean-Baptiste LeCaglione. I want to thank our engineer, Armin, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.